Well, tonight we're not going to look at magic from such a direct perspective. In fact, what we are going to talk about tonight probably can't really be categorized magic. And yet it operates, the, the levels that I'm going to talk about operate on issues that are very non-cause and effect. They're manipulated, they're contrived, and they're controlled, and they're controlling. Well, once the serpent persuaded our first human beings to accept a partially pseudo-worldview, a virtual reality in which the artificial could, pre- could prevail, a trend was set that would lead to the Tower of Babel. According to Genesis 11, the Babylonians built the tower and the city to make a name for themselves. Now, making a name for yourself, name, has two connotations, a biblical one and a Babylonian one. The biblical version of name is, means character. When, God, when Moses asked to see God's glory, God uh, said, I will make all my goodness before you and I will proclaim to you my name. And he proclaims his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, gracious and merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is God's name. His whole character summed up in those words. It's not just Yahweh, Yahweh. It is all the adjectives and participles that follow. Jewish people to this day name their children after someone that they hope their child will become. I encountered that when I attended a Shabbat welcome service at the Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco. I used to take my Hebrew students and my honor students to that temple for a Shabbat evening worship. And uh, there was this one evening when this couple brought their child and they were, that child was going to be dedicated. They have a dedication service, much like we do for our children. And that child was going to be dedicated, and they asked them what the child's name was. And they said, it's named, and I don't remember, it was Elizabeth or something like that, uh, because she has an aunt that it was just a lovely person, and she has this attribute and that attribute and that characteristic, and we want our daughter to have the same. So name means character. To the Babylonians, naming something magically gave it existence. That's a totally different reality and far removed from character. But we might have guessed that the whole, you could summarize actually all the differences between Babylon and Israel along that line of Israel's into character into development Babylonians are into making things happen a certain way so for the Babylonians to make a name for themselves was to acknowledge their own self-existence they gave themselves existence by making themselves a name. 
And that self-existence represented self-power instead of character. So it is this attempt to attain power, the reason for avoiding being scattered. Remember, that's one of the reasons they came together in the plain of Shinar, and they built a city and they built a temple tower because they didn't want to be scattered on the face of the earth. It is this attempt to attain power and avoid being scattered that God is most concerned about. Nothing they plan, he says, will be impossible for them to do. And he knows the kinds of things they'll plan. Not things of love and trust and that sort of thing, but things of oppression and control and manipulation. And building the the city and the temple likely required a great deal of slave work. So the temple tower was in many ways a center of power. By changing the languages, God broke up those those structures of power and sent people to form new relationships and hopefully find relationships that are genuine and built on love and trust. Now, of course, the building of temples and towers and cities all took place gradually. And it really began with the invention of the city. I know that Adventists have a a heritage of being a little (laughs) anti-cities. That may have a backstory that we'll talk about tonight. When we think of the Tower of Babel, though, we think of the tower, and we don't tend to think of cities, but the text specifically says that they made the city. Cities rapidly emerged in Mesopotamia in the late 3000s. This is B.C. time, not A.D. time. And early 2000s B.C. So the late uh, 3rd and 2nd millennium B.C. But about 4,000 B.C., which is earlier, remember you count backwards to go B.C. time. About 4,000 B.C., few villages existed more than 10 hectares. A hectare is 2.5 acres, something like that. Only 10 hectares, that's not real big, with only a few hundred people in them. By 3300 B.C., Uruk one of the most ancient cities that was originally Sumerian and and later became Babylonian, consisted of 250 hectares, and I managed to figure that out today, as 617.5 acres. That's not real large, or 0.96 square miles. And and 0.96 square miles mean basically one square mile. That's not very big, but it had 20,000 people in it. So try to picture that. In the mid-1800s, archaeologist Layard could stand close enough to the Euphrates to see it and look out at more than 100 tells. Tells are ancient mounds of cities. More than 100 tells of large ancient Assyrian cities. They were large. 
And when Alexander the Great came to ancient Babylon to conquer it, he declared it to be a nation, not a city, because compared to Greek cities, it was so large. So when we talk about Babylon being a great city, it was. There's no getting around that. These cities led to something quite interesting. It led to uniform pottery being made. Imagine you went to the store to buy some dishes and you had only one kind. No decoration, plain, just functional, and you had no choice. Well, that's what cities led to. They led to the building of uniform pottery. Before, there had been individuals creating pottery. They had their own unique design and own unique shapes and and own unique gradations and so on. Now, you had just uniform, mass-produced pottery. They literally lost their artistic and individualistic design, which indicates that cities tend to destroy creativity and individuality. The Babylonian feature of the first millennium, now we're jumping down to the first millennium, which is when the, the millennium of Neo-Assyria under Sennacherib and Ashurbanipal uh, and uh, other kings. And also the, the first millennium was the time of Nebuchadnezzar II. Cities in that millennium develop fictional kinship. Remember, kinship in ancient societies was very important because it wasn't enough to be able to produce things that made you valuable. You had to have a lineage that gave you status so that you could really be somebody and have more power and more wealth and be able to uh, dominate in some way. So families included long-dead ancestors who weren't in their bloodline as their ancestors. Fictional kin. And cities tended to promote power through fictional kin. Despite urbanism, the Mesopotamians still used agriculture as their dominant resource. Yeah, you can imagine uh, with a city that size, 20,000 people possibly, or maybe even 10,000 people, not everybody's going to be close to nature. They're going to take orders, they have to produce things, they have to make them quickly, they have to not spend time thinking and analyzing about nature. So virtually only a handful of people became familiar with sowing and reaping that cause and effect relationship that is so prominent in farming. They also lost contact with the ecosystems and the cycle of giving. And they gradually lost the real and substituted it for for it, the fake or artificial. Now one of the features of the cities was the temple that grew increasingly elaborate as time went on. And one form of that temple was the tower, as in the Tower of Babel, the ziggurat. The Babylonian term for the tower was ziggurat. I used to think that was some crazy name that somebody with imagination kicked up, but it actually is the Akkadian word for tower, ziggurat. 
It consisted of several stages, kind of like terraces, led you up into the temple. These ziggurats were made of sun-dried bricks, but mostly of baked bricks. And what the, tower, what the Bible calls the Tower of Babel is simply the most famous one. And some think that Hammurabi built it. Others think that, Neb- well, and we know that Nebuchadnezzar restored it. It's called the uh, Isagila. It was Marduk's temple, the Isagila. You're saying we believe the actual Tower of Babel that was stopped construction by was, was the ruins were restored? Um, I doubt if it was the one the Bible is talking about. The one the Bible is talking about, I think, is the original one. There's a lot we do not know because we cannot access the time of Hammurabi and before. Uh, The river Euphrates changed course right after the time of Hammurabi. And that period of Hammurabi is underwater. So we don't have a single text from Hammurabi except where he sent them out to other places. And we have lots of those. Uh, But we don't have anything in situ that is in the city of Babylon. And almost nothing in the textual evidence of Mesopotamia tells us what these towers were for. Did they do magic in them? Uh, Were they special places for the gods to come down? Were they supposed to bring the gods closer to earth? Attract them, maybe. It's hard to know. But I have an idea based on Northwest Semitic understanding. And there there is a school of thought that believes that Northwest Semitic things influenced Babylon. And possibly Assyria. I believe that they functioned as artificial mountains. The, the plain was flat. There were no mountains except in the distant Ugar, U- Ugartu mountains. And the reason I think that they were fake mountains is because, and, they, and they, you notice that this says they had to use bricks for stone. They had to make their own stones, so to speak. The reason for that, in West Semitic cultures, the gods lived on the mountains which were symbols of dominance and power. So building this ziggurat was a symbol of power. Most ancient Near Eastern archaeologists and scholars agree that these very large temples, these ziggurat temples, dominated the city in size like a mountain would. These and smaller temples became the hub of the ancient city involving economics, kingship, and legal matters. So perhaps by now we can see that the rise of these cities and their powerful structures, particularly with the dominance of temple towers, led to a shift away from God's three creation models. And what are these three models? Nature, with natural law, cause and effect, giving and receiving. Family, with nurture, bonds of love and trust, intimacy, Sabbath, freedom, equality, 
time for relationships. Well, the ancient Mesopotamians also developed three models. Economics, kingship, and contractual and judicial relationships. I remember the day I was I was gradually pulling beginning to pull the layers the enormous layers of understanding ancient Mesopotamia. I mean it's just a huge task to find your way around it and make sense of it. The Babylonians had a certain amount of logic but their system of theology is not coherent at all. And I was trying to find the bottom line what was what were the Babylonians best known for? What where where did they begin to to leave the models God gave and form their own? And I finally found it one day economics. Now, you have to know me. I am about as far removed from liking economics as maybe some of you are to liking studying the ancient Near East. <laughs> I uh, started studying economics in high school my senior year. We had to take a, a semester of it. And the book was abominable. It didn't, I didn't understand hardly a word in it. And uh, it was uh, so dry and so boring and so hard to understand that at the end of the, the school year, which was my senior year, of course, I wanted to have, gather my classmates together and have a book-burning ceremony out in the desert and we would all burn our economic books because the teacher announced that we weren't going to use those books next year. Well, too late for us, huh? But... <laughs> What a great time we would have burning our books. Um, I didn't carry that out. I just threatened to. But there it is, economics. Now, I have friends who are economists, one in particular, and he contends that economics is not that opposed to God's models of love and trust. Well, it depends on what kind of economics you practice, right? He claims that in economics are embedded the principles of God's government. But the kind of economics I'm talking about are the kind that one scholar has written an entire book establishing that the ancient Mesopotamians practiced market economy from the very earliest times. And that market economy, he says, is built on the same principles as the very famous economist uh, Adam Smith, who said, It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from regard to their own interests. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love. That means that the bottom line of economics as it began in a market-driven society was likely self-interest. Now, there may have been an interest for saving the whole and all of that, but this particular writer who 
who talks about ancient Mesopotamian economics from cover to cover practically, suggests that, in fact, he quotes that statement by Adam Smith and says this is the kind of economics that were practiced. So if the dominant factor is self-interest, we don't have a lot of trust and trustworthiness. Society shifted from semi-nomadic kinship model of living off the land and sharing and receiving to attempts to build wealth and dominance. And competition became the norm. Remember the other night I suggested that we can't compete against someone and love them and be for them at the same time. It's very difficult to play that. You almost have to force it into place to play that off. Reality and values became arbitrary. Prices could fluctuate according to who had the most power and for the sake of gain. We call that inflation, don't we? People became worth what they owned or made. Creativity and individuality began to wane. And economics spawned these contractual and relationships and contracts which controlled relationships that bound people to agreements. After all, why do we, why do we form a contract with someone? Because you don't trust them. Because you don't trust them. That's right. My father went in to buy a car one time many years ago when I was a child. And uh, the dealer gave him such a good deal, he just couldn't pass it up. And so he signed the contract. Then he noticed some very small print. And he read through it and discovered that it was a very bad deal. He didn't know what to do. He had signed it. And he tore it in pieces. And the dealer said, oh, I've lost my contract. And he got up, my dad got up and walked out. So contracts are to attempt to establish relationships that don't have love and trust. They're by very nature not based on love and trust. There is also the introduction of substitution. X equals Y. Three sheep equals one donkey. Really? Even one donkey isn't equal to another. We fail often to really replace people who leave our workplace. Right? We talk about taking someone's place, but can we really replace them? No, everything changes. Economics led to the start of a kind of virtual reality as the Mesopotamians veered from trusting and loving relationships generated from trustworthiness and love. Eventually, economics helped to lead to war as Mesopotamians' envious neighbors sought to plunder their stuff. The Gutians, the hills, is one example. They looked down at these cities that were being built on the plain of Shinar. Shinar is Hebrew for Sumer. And they got very greedy of what was going on down there. Now, most of what was going down on, on down there was agricultural. But they still envied that gain, grain and wanted it. And so they descended and began to plunder the cities of Babylonian. And of course, uh, in the market economy that developed in ancient Mesopotamia, they were able to 
get enough grain to be able to have a surplus that they then can buy gold and silver and a whole lot of other things. Interestingly enough, the first war that we know of, the earliest one, occurred when the king of Arata and the king of Uruk ended up in a duel. The king of Uruk decided he wanted some gold from the king of Arata. The king of Arata lived in the Urartu Mountains and he had access to lots of gold and silver. He didn't have a lot of grain. So the king of Uruk sent an envoy to the king of Arata and using psychological warfare got a lot of his gold. It was a game, uh, a warfare really of psychological force. But eventually, the, the wars turned more violent physically, and this required someone to lead the troops. And now we come to the next model the Babylonians developed, kingship. According to ancient myths, the person who led the troops were supposed to be temporary leaders who then melted back into common life as a citizen, giving up their military powers but the myths tell how certain military leaders tried to hang on to their power and keep leading the city state the first one I'm thinking of is the Anzu myth uh, where Ninurta who later became the god of kingship for obvious reasons went out against the Anzu bird which was a great chaos monster and he's managed to slay the Anzu bird and retrieve from him the stolen tablets of destiny which gave anyone who had them centralized power over other people. He managed to get those tablets of destiny. I can't help but pause. What tablets of destiny did Israel have? Two tables of stone. And what kind of destinies were those? Power? Internal locus of control. So he, anyway, uh, Ninurta got these tablets of destiny, hung them around his neck, and made off with them. He was supposed to return them to the person who owned them, but he kept them. He wanted that power. And uh, they had to send someone to him to wrest them from him. According, eventually, according to one myth, the Enuma Elish that we talked about uh, Tuesday night, the wannabe leader, Marduk, bargained to lead the troops on condition that he be king of all. And this all got transported to the gods. And what I'm talking about with Ninurta and Marduk are deities that the Assyrians and Babylonians worshipped. But it's likely a reflection of what happened in human life. According to archaeology, there's another way kingship started. Religion and economics combined where the priest kings emerged. Kingship came into being on the backs of general hierarchical relationships that had been formulating for many years. In the house of the father, you had tiers of hierarchy uh, as you had the father of the lowest possible family or household. And he was under the father of uh, his father above him. And then, or, or under the firstborn brother. And they were under the, the father of the clan and the, that was under the father of the tribe, and then finally they're under the father who is the king. 
And of course, the king was under the father, who was the god of kingship. What was this house of father? House of the father. It's actually a term in both Ugaritic and Hebrew to denote this whole system of hierarchy, and and to denote, sometimes to denote one's household. It's used in Numbers quite a bit when it's counting, doing the census. So let's look at the outcomes of kingship. One person has the right to rule over and control others. Did God ever give anybody that right? Jesus. What did What did Jesus say about ruling over? That you have to be servant of everyone. Exactly. So. Who did God, in, in the Garden of Eden, who did God give us the right to rule over, or any Animals. human being? Animals. Nature. But not humans. We are responsible for taking care of them. Yes. Yes. Responsible, that included responsibility of taking care of the garden. So if we're not to rule over others, why would the re- what would be the reason for that? Freedom of conscience. Okay, freedom of conscience. To keep a direct line to God. To keep a direct line to God. Any other ideas? There's there's multiple reasons for this. Power corrupts. Power corrupts. If we are all equal in the sight of God, what gives me the right to tell you what to do? I mean, how can I know for you what is best for you to do? I don't know what's inside your mind. I don't really know you that well. And even if I did, even if I were your spouse or your parent, I wouldn't know you like God does. What gives me the right to step into God's place which God himself does not even use and order you around. What happens when we have one person rules over others as we find from Hammurabi. Hammurabi lived in the second millennium about roughly the latter part of the first half is that there was a stratification of value. He developed a class system or at least under him a class system developed. And whoever has the most power in a class system has the greatest value. You know, we talk about righteousness by faith instead of by works. And that we can't earn our way to heaven. We can't earn our value either. If we were to take away our our mentality of earning our value and, and our value being based on what we earn or make, we would get rid of that and realize we are already valuable we might understand righteousness by faith a little more so what happened with kingship is that because you have one person calling the shots and and maybe devolving down to the officers below him that they call the shots and they to officers below them who call the shots because of this it deepens the external locus of control I now instead of having self-control and utilizing that self-control to make the world a better place, I now am using 
or yielding my self-control to the control of who's above me. Another thing that happened as a result of kingship is that angry kings had to be appeased. Kings found out that if they got angry and threw a temper tantrum, they could get their way. And because they had the most power, they could curry the favor of people, and people had to bow and scrape to them and appease them and posture before them, all in terms of a fake, manipulated relationship. Now we come to contractual and judicial relationships and false authority. Before we get to this, I want to give you what I consider to be one of Ellen White's most significant statements, particularly on the, in the issue of morality and authority. I hope I can say it by memory. This is off the cuff now. God could have destroyed Satan and his followers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth. But he would not do this. Sin, I'm going to paraphrase from here, sin could not be overcome by compelling power. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord does not rule by force or authority. His authority authority is not based on force. But he, he rules by truth and love, and they are to be the prevailing power. If you want to look this up, it's in Desire of Ages, page 759. I'm sorry I gave such a poor rendition of it. It's been a while since I've recited that one. But uh, it's, it's basically introducing a complete new model for authority as built on love and trust. Compelling power to give her exact words, is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation, not the enforcement, but the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. So the means that were to use to to enact God's way of government is to present it, not to enforce it. In the contractual and judicial relationships and false authority, there was a loss of love and trust that required control. One of my colleagues, former colleagues, he's retired now, but I still consider him my colleague, Angel Hernandez, once said to me that laws are the bailing wire we use to hold relationships together when they're devoid of love and trust. So contractual agreements require enforcement. Somebody, you write, you write a contract with somebody and they fail that contract. You have the right to take them to court and sue them. That happened all the time in ancient Mesopotamia. And most ancient Mesopotamian laws resemble verdicts in the judges used in the courts. Uh, they also, in the legal sphere, required hard evidence so they developed ways to put clay tablets in which they wrote the terms of a contract or the terms of a deed or, or any contractual relationship into clay envelopes with seals on those clay envelopes. And then the per, only the person who had the seal 
that they could put against that impression and confirm it was theirs could break open that contract. There were treaties with arbitrary and self-centered stipulations. So the same self-interest that dominated economics also dominated the legal sphere. The great kings of Assyria proclaimed treaties filled with stipulations that acted more of what we think of as law. The edicts, proclamation of stipulations, you have to do this, you must do this, you must do that. And it's not surprising that the book of Deuteronomy casts the Ten Commandments as a treaty. You have the stipulations, you have the the prologue, you have the curses that follow. And those curses invoked the gods and anyone who disobeyed the treaty was roundly cursed in curse formula. If the treaty got broken or a vassal king wouldn't pay tribute in Assyria, his punishment was to be flayed and his skin was tacked up on a hillside for all to see and be warned. Imagine walking by a hillside, maybe an old ancient tell that had gone to ruins, and here is lying the skin of the vassal king who refused to obey the treaty. Obeying the treaty meant sending your valuable silver and gold and other things, foodstuff, to the king of Assyria. It meant yielding your soldiers whenever the king of Assyria wanted to go to war. Ironically, the recipients of Ezrahaddon's succession treaty, Ezrahaddon, by the way, is the son of Sennacherib, the recipients of Ezrahaddon's succession treaty are commanded to love Ezrahaddon, or else. (laughs) What kind of love is that? So there's compliance through fear, not love, and trust. External compliance, not obedience. From the heart, the only genuine kind. And what it meant is artificial, disingenuous relationships. So let's do a little bit of a thinking process here. If we look at this from term, in terms of morality, is human value earned or given by God at creation? Given by God. Okay. Love, respect, and fair treatment, is it earned or given by right of creation? Given. Okay. Are God's commands arbitrary and artificial, or do they make sense and derive from how things are designed to work? God's commands, do they demand compliance or empower obedience? Remember Ellen White's terms that every command is a promise? I never understood quite, I mean, I I could see it. You shall have no other gods before me, or you will have no other gods before me. But I had a hard time wrapping my mind around it until I really looked at creation carefully and thought about that. And Psalm 19 is a beautiful job of putting creation law and the laws that God gave side by side and basically saying they come from the same source with the same methodology. 
Morality, is it based on arbitrary rules or the dynamic principles of love, trust, and truth? Love, trust, and truth. Now here's a little bit of a stickler. God, are God's ways based on arbitrary externally administered penalties or natural consequences stemming from what one does and is? We're going to be looking at that some more tomorrow night. But... Um, since all three of these Mesopotamian models led to increasing levels of power and resulted in lower levels of subordination, I'd like to finish with a story, one that you all know. If you want to look it up, it's in Daniel 2. And it has to do with Nebuchadnezzar and a dream he forgot. This is as Adventist as you can get. That's right. When you say increasing levels of power for a very few, like for a very few, yes, and deeper levels of subordination for the many. Gotcha. And Francis Schaeffer says that um, secular humanism has that same end goal. Yeah, that's possible. So Daniel comes into the picture with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's plight and retells the dream of a mighty image made of various metals, precious metals, some of them, and dirt. We don't think of that with the toes, but they are clay, right? Representing a long line of kingdoms who would rule the world. First Babylon, then Media, Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and finally ten tribes would dominate the earth. Every one of them would seek power and abuse it. At the end of the 14 kingdoms, there would come a rock. Just a plain old rock. And that rock was cut out, but not with hands. Now, most of your versions, I think even the King James, inserts a word that is not in the Hebrew. Human. It's not in the Hebrew. The word in the Hebrew is just, I'm sorry, Hebrew, I should change that, Aramaic. He was speaking Aramaic at that point. The only word in Aramaic is hand or hands. It's actually the dual form of hands. And in both Hebrew and Aramaic, the term hand means power. That's one of its main meanings. So, for example, it's often used in a sentence meaning that God gave so-and-so into the hand or power of so-and-so. This rock is cut out without power. Not even God's power cuts it out. It is a powerless rock. But look what it does. It grows. It's a dynamic rock, not a static rock. It grows and grows and grows as though it has an internal power that expands it outward. And it strikes the feet of the image, toppling it and putting it to dust. I see the creation principle of transformation at work here. But if it is not about power, that action suggests a demonstration of God wants uh, of what God wants us to worship him for the most his love all the kingdoms of the world all their power and wealth 
and prowess will be reduced to power when the anointed one, Jesus, the sovereignty of love, comes to take his home. And like Jesus, that rock strikes at the root of the problem of power, the feet. Jesus always did that, didn't he? What I'm talking about is not something we can do with ourselves. We cannot switch from the kinds of relationships the world offers that are artificial, contrived, manipulated, and controlled. Only through the source of love. And asking him to engender that love in our hearts, to love us, can we hope to make that switch. And so I I know we've been spending a lot of time on the negative side of things. But in a way, I hope to, by doing that, to set us free from those ways. Because we now understand what they're about and how they hurt and destroy us and other people. And make us long for and, and reach out to God, the God of love, to fill us with his love. And to, and to have that relationship of trust, which Paul says is what God wants, is the righteousness he's looking for. This is is one of the heavier topics. (laughs) Tomorrow night we'll be talking about God's wrath. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Popcorn too. (laughs) It is is not the same as Babylonian wrath. The kind of wrath that we've always pictured God having is Babylonian. What? What are your questions? And I'm just going to say something at the outset, and, and forgive me on any judgments I make, but I'm always going to prefer young adult questions to people like me. You, you're upset with my edict? Oh, <laughs> wow. Oops. See, I'm going to have to show you my driver's license <laughs> to see if I'm young enough to purchase uh, oh. question. I'm not going to be nasty, so don't worry. So, go ahead, Vince. <laughs> okay, you mentioned Marduk and uh, the ziggurats and things like that. And um, I remember the adoption of pagan practices such as making your sons walk through the fire. Can you elaborate on that, about that kind of... Uh, that does not seem to be Babylonian. Oh really? They did. Babylonians at certain time periods did hu- human sacrifices, probably more earlier in Sumerian times. But I would not say that that's Babylonian. That's uh, Northwest Semitic practice. That was Molech, right? It is hard to know what the actual practice of passing through the fire was. Now some have claimed that what they did is they created an idol for Moloch. Um, and it isn't clear that it was, there's a big debate on whether it was an, uh, Moloch as an, a god or whether he's the practice of child sacrifice. But anyway, they, they would create this idol that was hollow and they would stoke it with red hot fire. So his hands held out like this were red hot and then they would put infants in those hands to cremate them. Now, that's what I've heard. I have not been able to verify that. 
So that that may not be how it was done, but in some way they they turned infants to ashes. We we really blame the Phoenicians for this kind of practice. And it was done rampantly in Carthage, Africa, where there was a Phoenician community or Punic community. And uh, it was so rampant that the priests were coming into families' homes and snatching their children for child sacrifices so that the parents would adopt their children out to a to a family in a city 20 miles away so that they could spare their child's life. But that doesn't mean some form of human sacrifice wasn't practiced in Mesopotamia. We just don't have a lot of documentation of it. And of course you have the substitute king ritual that I mentioned last night. Yes, Steve. I was just thinking in terms of what you said about the three the three things that came out of Babylon, whether it's the economic stuff, whether it's the king stuff, whether there was a third... The legal. The legal stuff, yeah, the contractual things. <laughs> Obviously, those things are still very much alive and well today. Yes. And as you were talking, I was thinking in terms of, like, Revelation saying, come out of her, my people. Like, how, how, is, how, is, how is someone to extricate themselves from this all-encompassing system... We can only do it one way, and that is by exemplifying the love of Jesus to the point that the world kicks us out, and we have no economic, no legal, and, and kingly support. Yeah, and then, and then on top of that, it says you won't be able to buy or sell. Exactly. Because you won't be a part of that economic system. Exactly. Okay. Yes. I just was a little confused about the way you you know, worth what, what you own, you know, and we have that, it's very prevalent right now. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, uh, yeah, I lived in a community of wealthy people, and I was very cognizant of the fact that I wasn't worth as much, <laughs> but I, I, I did, I did run into that. Well, there's, it's, money speaks, and money talks, and money buys. It's, it's amazing. Yes. It's amazing how language can be adapted to accommodate and describe the system in ways that are acceptable. Like I'm, I'm reading in um, late, some late seventeenth uh, and early eighteenth century. No, late yeah, late sixteenth and early seventeenth century history in England and New England. The term Commonwealth um, it described that everyone is part of a system that's set up for all of our good, but God has placed each person in their station in that, and they're whether not to high move. or low, wealthy or poor, and they are to stay in that station so that the whole system works for everybody, which, and to, I, to the extent that it does, and uh, I'm almost certain you could find, I'm almost certain you could find that language in Babylon, <laughs> yeah. almost identically. You laid out the framework of the Babylonian, the three levels of the Babylonian counterfeit, and I lost track of what the very concise definition you gave of nature, family, and Sabbath as the original pattern. It it has to do with building genuine relationships of love and trust. That's the root. I have a lot of elaboration. Family, for example, has intimacy, nurture, Development. Sabbath has to do with equality, freedom, and time for relationships. <laughs> My father has. 
Uh, and then uh, nature, nature, natural law, cause and effect relationships. My father had the privilege of practicing with a man who originally called him to practice medicine with him from 1959 to 1972 when Dr. Atterbury retired, and they never had a contract. Wow. That's great. That's, yeah, that's a nice echo for me. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It was uh, towers, the ziggurats, were they a replica of Eden, or attempt at replicating Eden? Was there a mountain in Eden? We don't know of one. There are rivers. The rivers, rivers. flow through, but there's no mention of a mountain. Because in all cultures, the Inca yeah. Well, the the Incas, the Incas and the Mayans, I'm suspicious are related to the Babylonians in some way, some yeah. distant way. <laughs> By the way, the rest of his practice, he spent looking for another partner and never found one for some reason. Yes. <laughs> I thought I saw a hand over here. Okay. Uh, that uh, I just liked what you said about the lost creativity and uh, controlling people and a contract and it establishes relationships that don't have love and trust and then the substitution thing and what you were saying about you can't really replace someone at work like can you really like you're taking the individuality of a human being and what they give on all levels. I can't really say the word intrinsic like you do, but that's what you mean, mm-hmm. right? The intrinsic mm-hmm. value of a human being. Yes. Intrinsic value. It's very good. Now, what you were, um, you talked about the effect on art mm-hmm. and artisanship. Um, in your sieve that I took a few see from Kathleen Mitchell, she introduced to me the term that you almost said, or maybe did say, surplus and specialization, which actually freed people up to do creative pursuits also, right? Theoretically, they didn't have to be working on theor- the farm. And- theoretically, it should, whether it does or not, ultimately. Because it seems that once we, if you look at the Industrial Revolution, what you have is just some people just do the mass production and that's all they get to do and other people at the top so creativity becomes an elitist yes. value absolutely that makes that, that makes really good sense and, and the problem is it's never genuine because you're always under pressure to and competition and competition and I also liked what you said about um how not everyone was close to nature, and so nature's so valuable because you were saying the so great cause and effect, and so without seeing nature and having that, then you end up with this artificial fake reality. I, I really believe that. I really believe that the, the more time we spend away from nature, the more artificial we become. And it's art in our health. Yeah. The research keeps coming, coming yeah. forward and coming forward. Yeah. That's where I, I'm going to put a pitch sale in. 
PUC really loves its natural habitat, and we are, I I don't want to say exploiting it, that's a very bad term, but we are going to be using it in in education and in in hopefully uh, creating a better endowment for PUC. Yep. I want to talk about the juxtaposition of Babylon and Jerusalem in the apocalypse, and ask why is Jerusalem, if you know your thesis is correct, why is Jerusalem significant for nature, family, and Sabbath? What is Jerusalem is a city, isn't it? Yeah. What are we doing with the city? The description of the city, of the New Jerusalem, is Edenic in the Book of Revelation, with the the tree and the river flowing. You know, it's so. So I would like to, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, Bruce says it's idyllic uh, in its description with the tree and the river flowing through it and trees on either side. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's a reveal in the future. There's juxtapositions before the glorification of the Lamb on this earth with Jerusalem and Babylon. So I'm not really referring to the New Jerusalem. Oh, so, oh, Jerusalem with, <coughs> juxtaposition with Jerusalem. Like, come out of Babylon, like, into what? Jerusalem is the obvious... I, w- I would think in, in terms of Revelation, it would be New Jerusalem, because that's where we're, fa- we're heading in the book. We're on that trajectory toward but, the New Jerusalem. But the Apocalypse holds within it the tension of the worship and the worship wars that exist in preparation for the Second Coming. Yes. Yes, but by the time Revelation was written... Old Jerusalem had been conquered already once and the temple destroyed by Rome. So really there's no earthly type of nature? No, I, I see the two great... The two great uh, it's, it, see, Revelation, the center of Revelation is the conquering of Satan in the war. I, I, actually, I actually did a kind of crazy thing. I don't know why I did it, but... I felt compelled to count all the words in the Greek New Testament of Revelation <laughs> and find the midpoint. And I had my dad, my dad took, did a minor in Greek in, at PUC many, many years ago, and he still used his Greek New Testament. So I said, okay, Dad, will you count with me so I have someone to kind of gauge it against? And, and we managed to find that in chapter 12, verse 10, that's the midpoint. Now is the it now is uh, the. I should look it up. Now have come. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, "Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah." For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Amen. What chapter? Chapter twelve, verse ten. Revelation. I, I like that. I like that too. <laughs> I was I was pretty stunned when I when I realized, you know, I we carefully made sure we had gotten and we didn't count the the articles as words because in Hebrew they're part of the word. So if you were counting it in Hebrew, you would not count the articles. So you're dealing the heart of revelation is a war. And you have two sides. And everything in chapters 4 through 21 is about those two sides. So you have the mark and you have the seal. You have the, um, 
the lamb and you ha- have the beast, you have uh, the dragon, and you have, without it being said, the voice from heaven, which Robbie represents the father. You actually have a false trinity as well as embedded the true trinity. So I see the only city mentioned is not Jerusalem, but New Jerusalem that's on God's side. So I see Babylon and New Jerusalem as the opposites. Was it in Hebrews that it said, we are of the Jerusalem above? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Presently, we are of the Jerusalem above. Okay. Okay. Where did the Ark of Lamb, and how did that affect society, and how long was it from the Ark to the destruction of Babylon? It isn't clear. That's a difficult one to answer because the Babylonians believed in the flood too. And their flood is after. They had kings before the flood and kings after the flood. And we don't know for sure. So this civilization is before the flood and after the flood. Well, that's nice about Babylon, but was there such a thing as Babylon before the flood? Uh, No. Um, When I talk about Babylon in terms of the Bible, I don't do this in terms of scholarship, but in terms of the Bible, the Bible seems to lump Assyria, Mesopotamia, I mean Syria, Sumer, and Babylon kind of together as in the same pot, especially when it talks about them going on the plain of Shinar and building the Tower of Babel. Shinar is Sumer, but the Tower of Babel is Babylon. So they put them together in, in one whole thing. So I sometimes refer to it as Mesopotamia because Mesopotamia includes everything. Was Babylon the antithesis of the religion that came up around the heart? Well, my understanding is that the religion that came up upon the ark didn't last around the ark very long. They spread out. The ark is somewhere in the Urartu Mountains, or was. Um, it wasn't necessarily on Mount Ararat. Because it says the, the Ararat Mountain is one mountain, but the Bible is explicit, it's mountains, and so it would be the Urartu Mountains. And so it seems that the people around the ark left and, and migrated down. And of course, we know Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. And that's not Ur down in Saudi Arabia, which I recently heard someone contend. It's not Ur up, probably up in Syria. It's Ur of the Chaldees, and the Chaldees were in ancient Ur of Sumer. So we don't know who Abraham was. He came out of, but, but in the configuration of Genesis, Abraham is the sequel to the Tower of Babel. He comes out of that in, in the way Genesis is constructed. All right, last question. What is like said, soon after the flood, Tower of Babel, or soon, what's soon, two years to Because they obviously... You know, you just have the three sons of Noah, but yeah. they obviously knew how to construct, so they right. had to bring knowledge. Soon, meaning as soon as it could happen, I would think. And they had, they must have brought knowledge of buildings. Right, they brought knowledge of building, and they brought knowledge of mountains, the Urartu Mountains. 
Would you please pray for us? Okay. Gracious Father, tonight as we've pondered the world that we live in, that is so much like Babylon. It makes us long for that new Jerusalem, which Jesus said was our Father's house. And in our Father's house are many rooms. And that Jesus went to prepare a place for us there. And we long for that. We long for that day. Embed the principles of that city in our hearts. And help us to model our lives after the Lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.